Here at Doxedo Hatfield, we are a family on mission. Make sure to get connected by joining us at one of our Sunday services. We hope you enjoy today's message. Good stuff, friends. So can we please take out our Bibles together if that's all right? And you can open it to the very first book in your Bible, Genesis chapter 25. Genesis 25. And as always, if you don't have a Bible of your own yet, or you don't have one here this morning, just quickly put up your hand and just keep it there. We want to give you just one of these handout Bibles if you need it. And you can just be so kind as to give it to us at the end of our service once again. And the reason for that is here at Doxa Hatfield, we are passionate about the Word of God. It's a huge value for us. So we're in week three of our sermon series, if you're new with us, called Monday Morning Atheist. And this is one that we're actually doing together with the whole Doxedo family globally. And we've been tackling this question, this issue, that we all realize sometimes that isn't it true? On a Sunday morning, often God is celebrated, and then on a Monday morning, He's switched off. And we enter into our work life, whatever your work life is, all of us, whether you are a student or a scholar, whether you've got an eight to five, you're a business owner, whether you're a mom or a dad or a brother or a sister, you're a volunteer at a nonprofit or a church, all of us have a work life, a vocation. And often we enter into that time on a Monday morning practically atheists. And that is not the calling that God has upon our lives. We've said that God has actually placed us, He's called and commissioned us to live connected to Him, the source of purpose and life and joy and power in our workspace 24-7. He has placed us in this world. And in that first week, we spoke about serving God, working with God, with His passion and His excellence and His servant hearts. And so please, that's the foundation for the whole sermon series. If you missed that first one, please go and get it on our website, on your favorite platform for podcasting. And then we said these remaining three weeks, all we're going to do is we're going to look at three misconceptions, three myths that we have with regard to our work, things that can derail us, try and disconnect us again from God. And so last week, we just simply tackled this thing that we all often believe is that there are spiritual elements to my life and unspiritual elements. Some moments in the week, some people, some jobs even are sacred, they're spiritual, and other people's jobs, other people in their life and other moments in my world, those are secular, those are unspiritual. And we came to the place of saying, no, actually God says everything, especially your work, is deeply sacred, it's deeply spiritual. And so today we want to just tackle this very simple thought, that in my work life it feels like I am all alone and it's all up to me. It's all up to me. Now, probably one of my favorite movies growing up uh, is the movie Home Alone. Who's watched Home Alone before? It's like deep 90s, typical, you know, before Macaulay Culkin messed up his life with all the drugs. Um, he was this great child actor in this movie. And, you know, his family, hashtag, you know, parenting fail, they go to France and they forget one of their children at home. And he is so psyched about this because now he's finally, you know, he can do what he wants and it's exciting and he's doing all the things that he's ever dreamt of doing in the home. But eventually he gets to the place of realizing actually being all alone, it's not that fun. When Robert's tried to, you know, break into his house and he has to fend for himself and suddenly he realizes, I'm all alone and that's difficult. I think so often we enter into a Monday feeling, man, Sunday I was with the people of God. I was inspired. You know, the power of God is flowing. And Monday morning as I enter into my work life, into my home, into my commune, into my office, it's all up to me. It's all on my shoulders. I'm carrying the weight of this responsibility. And I want to show us, it's a bit of an unconventional place to go look for it, but in the story of this man in the Old Testament called Jacob, 
I want us to see the reality of what happens in both of those cases when I live with the idea that I'm all alone. That's my perception. I'm all alone. Or when I actually try and do it all alone. What are the results of that? And I'm going to offer you this morning literally one thing. One thing that I think God is giving us as a counterpoint that we can go and do. So his story starts in Genesis 25, you there, in verse 21, and it says this, his father Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. And the Lord was receptive to his prayer, and his wife Rebekah conceived. But the child inside her struggled with each other, these children. So from the beginning, we already see this narrative of struggle. And the first one came out red-looking, covered with hair like a fur coat. That's just a classic detail, isn't it? And they named him Esau. In verse 26, and after this, his brother came out grasping Esau's heel with his hand. So after years of infertility, these two finally have kids, and it's twins. And the first one, Esau, comes out, and he's literally covered in, like, red hair. And so they call him Esau, which means hairy. That's literally what it means. That's a great name to have, by the way. And so after this, they see as he comes out, there's this little tiny hand grabbing onto his heel. And so they name his brother Jacob. And Jacob has a dual meaning. It means, on the one hand, deceiver, one who deceives, and secondly, one who grabs onto that which is not his, the one who reaches out, the one who strives to get that which is not his. And so we have these two kids. We've got Harry and we've got Grabby. Those are the two children in these narratives. And from the beginning, I think more than any other person in the Old Testament, this almost word over Jacob's life of grabbing, conniving, swindling, trying to make it work, that is such an evident strain all throughout his life. And so we see he actually at one stage, he tries to rob his brother of his birthright. So in the ancient Eastern context, the eldest brother, they would have this amazing gift given to them called the birthright, which meant that they would get a disproportionate um, you know, amount of the father's inheritance. And they would be instilled as the new head of the family. They would be the new patriarch when the, the dad passed away. So this was a very coveted thing. To be born with that coming down your life somewhere, it was a huge honor. But Jacob wants that which is not his. And so he actually cheats. He Jacobs, he deceives his own brother out of his own birthright by selling it to him in exchange for a measly bowl of soup. That's how good of a con man he is. But he doesn't just want his birthright. He wants his blessing as well. Because again, in their culture, before the father would pass away, he would pray over this eldest son and he would instill him as the new patriarch. But Jacob, he wants that as well. And so once again, he cheats, he swindles, he deceives his father and his brother into actually getting that. He steps in line in front of his brother and he gets this blessing. This pattern just repeats all throughout his life. And so as he's now messed up his relationship with his, with his family and with his brother, he flees. He goes to his uncle, his mother's brother called Laban. And in that time there, he actually falls in love with Laban's youngest daughter called Rachel. Um, but in this classic reversal moment, as he wants to marry this girl, his uncle Laban actually swindles him a bit. He deceives him, and he gets him to marry the wrong lady. So he wakes up that next morning after his wedding. He's very hungover, and he realizes, I've married the wrong woman. I don't know how you do that. But you have to be very drunk. It has to be a great, great wedding party. But he realizes that, and he's angry at his uncle. He says, you've deceived me. 
Isn't that classic? You've jacob me. Why have you done this to me? And in our context, maybe you would just get a divorce. But in their context, the answer is you actually marry the other daughter then as well. So he marries the other daughter and he decides, you know what? I will not be outdone like this. And so he sticks around his uncle's territory, which is now his father-in-law, for a couple of decades with the sole intent of swindling his uncle, his new father-in-law, out of the best of what he has. And he works, and he swindles, and deceives, and grafts, and he makes his way, and he forces things until it says this about him in Genesis 30, verse 43. And the man, speaking about Jacob, became very rich. He had many flocks and female male slaves and camels and donkeys. And just always take note that the Bible is not, it's not saying this is good. It's recording the messiness of life as we find it. So Jacob walks this, this headstrong, I'm the captain of my soul kind of route until two very significant moments in his life where God breaks into his swindling and he confronts him in the very deepest recesses of his soul. He changes his path. The first moment comes when he is sleeping, he's overnighting, and it says that he's alone in that moment at this place that he would eventually call Bethel. And God appears to him in a dream, and he speaks to him about what his actual plans are for him. And as he wakes up, he's confronted with the thought, I've never, I've been doing this alone, I don't need anyone else. And suddenly he realizes God actually wants to have him and his story, not the other way around. And it says this about that next morning, when Jacob woke up from his sleep, He said, surely the Lord is in this place. And I didn't know it. I've been doing things in my way, isolated, alone, headstrong. And tonight something started. This this thought has been planted in my head. Maybe God is actually here. I've just not taken note. I've not engaged. But he's still headstrong after that. But then it all comes to this climax moment in his life. Where as he is now many decades later, he's about to confront his brother once again. And the last time that they spoke, his brother was so angry, so furious, he wanted to murder Jacob. And so he finds himself at this river called Jabbok. And he sends his family and all his possessions in front of him. And he's alone once again. And this time God appears. And this time God is not playing around. He's not just going to appear in a vision. God actually appears in physical form. It's a strange story. And God wrestles with Jacob. God literally wrestles with him. And in this moment of physical but yet spiritual, emotional wrestling, God confronts Jacob with who he actually is. He he gets him to say, who are you? And he has to say, yes, I am Jacob. I'm the deceiver. I'm the swindler. He brings him to the end of himself. And in that moment, it's as if Jacob realizes, man, I have been running through life making it work. I've, you know, I've, I've been the one who's got the wisdom. I've been the one to cut the path. And in that very moment, as he comes to the end of himself, he realizes, you know what? I can't do this alone. I can't do this alone. I don't want to do this alone. And it's in that very moment that God says, okay, I will change your name. And he changes his name from Jacob, the the deceiver, the swindler, the one who grabs at things, who, who lunges when it's not the time. He changes it to Israel, the one who wrestles, who engages God. See, Jacob goes from Jacob, the man who's the self-starter, the self-made, you know, the, the self-sustaining man. He goes to be known as Israel, the man who knows that God is actually here, the one who engages God. It changes his life forever. You see, I think so often 
that story parallels exactly the journey that we walk in our work life. We walk into work, into our family, into parenting, into our studies, into our commune, into the office, and we feel, I'm alone. I have to do this on my own. And I think God wants to bring us to the same place that Jacob found himself in of saying, I'm inviting you not to walk the road alone. What does that look like? Let me, let me give you a couple of examples of how I've seen in my own life and in our lives very often how that kind of isolation, that self-chosen isolation or the perception of I'm isolated and alone, how that plays out. The first thing is often we say, well, when it comes to my work, whatever it is that you do, um, God has no interest in my work. That's the reality. God has no interest. And my conviction is that I don't think God is actually with me. You know, we see in Jacob's story that he is constantly having to make things work in his own mind because he feels, I've been left to myself. I have to fend for myself. No one's looking out for me. No one's, no, no one's blessing me. No one's thinking about me. So I have to make it work. It's all on my shoulders. The heavy burden of what I have to carry. It's so easy to have that same heart in my work. I, I, I pick up this heavy boulder on a Monday morning because I have to make it work. Because why? With the God of, of pastors and Sundays and, and sermons and prayers and worship, that's our perception often. Why would that God have any interest in my spreadsheets or my deadlines? Why would that God have any interest in that difficult operation that I have to perform tomorrow morning? Why would that God have any interest in that child in my one class that I'm struggling to, to get through to? Why would that God have any interest in this massive quarrel that's broken out amongst me and one of my colleagues? Why would that God have interest in that? So we go it alone. You know, we had this one friend, she studied with us, and during her master's year in architecture, she more and more had this, this duality that started happening in her life. She was a gifted musician, and she loved to be part of the worship team in the church. And more and more, she thought, man, when I'm, when I'm there on Sundays, or when we, you know, with the people of God, and I'm singing, and I'm leading the people, and the hands are in the air, and there's passion, man, I can see that God is using me. I can see that He's got a plan with me. He's with me, active at work. But then I have to go into my studies. Then I have to graft and I have to do these things and I've got to struggle. And you know what? I don't actually see God in this other world. So more and more she kind of compartmentalizes her life. I've got this thing and I've got this other thing and God is so present here and he's so absent here. And because of that, more and more she started throwing more of her weight into worship and more of her weight into the church and less and less into her studies to the point where she actually missed that first year. She, she completely flopped in that first year of master's. And it was so amazing to see how God started working with her, showing her the fact that I don't want you to live these two lives. You don't have a calling as a worship leader. And every now and then you've got to study as well and do this thing called architecture. No, I've called you as an architect. And I've gifted you as a musician as well. And seeing her bring these two worlds together again. Realizing, man, these are not supposed to be diverging. They are supposed to converge and work together. God has called me with one calling that I live out in multiple spaces. And her throwing her energy back into her studies and acing that master's degree. She realized God has deep interest in what I do because my work matters to God and God matters to my work. But very often, it's not just that thought that we think, well, 
God has no interest in my work, very often we feel, no, it's actually that God gets in the way of how I want to work. That's the reality. He gets in the way. And my conviction is not just that I don't think he's with me. I don't want God with me when I enter into my workspace, when I enter into my work life. We see that with Jacob. Jacob is a man that when the door is closed, he forces it open. When he's at the back of the queue, he sidesteps the queue. When people are not cooperating, he makes them cooperate. He swindles them into getting what he wants. It's so simple for us to subtly fall into that same mindset. If God is in the way of how I need to work, friends, I've heard this so often where people would say, well, you know, the thing is, on Sundays it's so easy because I have these life-giving conversations or in my community group on a Wednesday, the people are so great and nice and it's, I feel inspired, but guess what, friend? When I step into my workspace, I can't have my church face on. I can't have my church voice. I have to enter into a new mode of working because guess what? Some meetings have been, they've got to be driven in a certain way. Some employees, you've got, to, you've got to handle them in a certain way. Certain creditors, they've got, to be, they've, got to be, you know, they've got to be told certain things in a certain way. God would just get in the way of how I do things. One of the, the partners we walked the road with, a young adult, he was in the civil construction world. And I remember sitting with him and just having coffee. And he's saying he's living with frustration at the moment because, you know, he's in this tough as nails world, you know, civil construction. They just do roads most of the time for months at a time in the sun. And he's got these teams that he's got to lead. But now Jesus has come into his life and he's got this, this frustration because he says, you know what? I have to become a different person when I step onto that construction site. Joe, you don't understand. I have, to, I have to get those guys to work. I've got to tell some of those subcontractors exactly what I think about them. Otherwise, it won't work. But I've got this tension that I'm experiencing more and more as I journey with God. I think there's a different way, that, a different path that he's trying to chart for me. But how does that work? He's going to get in the way of effective work. He was being challenged. you going at this all alone. You think I have no interest. You think I have no place there. But you're wrong. Your work matters deeply to me, and I matter deeply to your work. But thirdly, the thing that we often think, it's not just that God, you know, he doesn't care, or he's not, he's not there. Very often it's that God can't actually help me in my work. He can't help me. My conviction is not that I don't want him there, or I don't think he's there. I don't need him there. What would God have to do with my work? We see this in Jacob's life. He has this, this kind of a hard-headed, I-know-it-all attitude to life. I've got all the resources and plans to make this thing work. It's so simple to do that in my workspace. I have all the internal resources. I've got the plans. I've got the money. I've got the ambition. I've got the vision for this company. I can do this. I don't need God here. That's very often how we live. I had an interview the other day with one of the partners from Doxedo Ferry Glen. He's a CA. And he was speaking about just the fact that when he started out in his work, he was so confident in his skill set. He was a high-performing, type-A personality kind of guy. And then once again, Jesus comes into his life, and he says more and more, he's almost challenged with a new way of doing things. And he says more and more, he finds himself actually praying with people in the church about certain things he's facing in his job. He finds himself actually fasting at times because of some of the, the challenges their company is facing. 
He finds himself bringing some of these things into community and saying, guys, will you support me? God, what's the right thing to do? And so he tells us one story. I thought that was so brilliant. He said this one year as he's busy with the projections, the next three years for their company, what are some of the targets we, we're setting out for ourselves? And he says, he suddenly has the sense that God is saying, allow me to speak into the situation. And so he prays this one evening. He just waits upon God and he feels, it's almost that it's not audible, it's louder than audible kind of voice in his mind where he just says, God says to him, I want you to double that projection that you've put in. That very ambitious projection, I want you to double that. And he thinks in his, because he said, you know, he always had a strong intellectual business acumen mind. And at one stage he felt, well, I've got my spiritual mind and my business mind. And now it feels like God is saying, no, I want you to bring these two together. Trust me in this. And so he does that. And long story short, he says at the end of that next year, they had more than doubled this double projection that he had put in. He says he's deeply challenged. Not only is not, you know, God not saying, you have no need for me in this. You don't understand the need that you have for me in your work. Don't let these paths go separate. Don't let your parenting, your friendship, don't let your studies, don't let your work life, don't let these things separate like Jacob that God says, I want to bring them back powerfully into one space. You see, you see in Jacob's life, it comes down to this, friends. When you are writing your own story, you have the pen in your hand alone. That's tough. <laughs> you better be really good at what you're doing. But the invitation from God is, come to me. Let me be the author and you be the co-author. Who watched Toy Story 4 this year? Anyone? Yeah. What a great movie, right? That was like, you're just sitting in that movie like, just smiling ear to ear, so much joy, just so much enjoyment to be found. But the original Toy Story in 95, I mean, that's, that's dinosaur years ago. It's so incredible. You know what the story is? Actually, we know this, it's this game changer in the animated world. And it's got this, this incredible kind of buddy cop uh, interplay between the cowboy and the space ranger, Woody and, and Buzz Lightyear. They form this kind of eternal friendship. And it's such, a, it's such a joy to watch these. But do you know that the original draft of Toy Story, it was just one man authoring it. He was writing the story. And originally his plan, and they, they had actually worked a lot on this already, was that Woody, it would not be this happy-go-lucky movie. It would be this dark kind of, this very edgy movie. And, and Woody was imagined to be this ventriloquist doll. And he, with an iron fist, ruled over the toys. And he's so infuriated by this new toy, Buzz, coming into the space, that at one stage he actually tries to, you know, murder him, however you do that to a toy, and toss him literally out of the window. And eventually, you know, Buzz gets all the toys to stand up against this, you know, this evil tyrant called Woody, and they toss him out at the climax. They murder him at the end of the story. Now, let me ask you, do you think that that movie would have been the global phenomenon that it was if that dark tone was the point of it? Mo says, I, I would watch it. <laughs> Let's just say, outside of Mo, I doubt it. I doubt it. But you know what changed? You know what took it from that to this global movement is when other people stepped in with this guy and they started co-authoring, co-creating. They said, let's take the best of what we have here and let's shape it into something 
greater. The thing we fall into often is, God, I'm alone. I have to author this life, this work life alone. It's tough. And God says, but my invitation stands. Give me the pen. Give me the wheel. Give me the reins. I'll be the pilot. I'll be the author. I'll be the creator. I'll be the laborer. And you come and co-pilot with me. You come and co-labor with me. You co-create with me. I love how uh, Eugene Peterson, he paraphrases Galatians 5 verse 19. And he just says this. It's obvious what kind of life develops out of trying to get your own way all the time. Repetitive, loveless, cheap sex, a stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage, frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness, trinket guards, magic show religion, paranoid loneliness, cutthroat competition, all-consuming yet never satisfied wants, a brutal temper, an impotence to love or to be loved, a divided home and divided lives, small-minded and lopsided pursuits, the vicious habit of depersonalizing everyone into a rival, uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions. It just goes on. That's what happens when I want to be the captain of my soul. I'll author this thing myself. And he just, he just offers, and is paraphrased, just this thought in verse 22. But what happens when we live God's way? What happens? See, the invitation from God to Jacob was, friend, with your headstrong, I can do it myself, I'm alone, I'm the lone ranger, lone wolf. He says that's led to destruction, it's led to destitute, it's led to, to heartbreak and body bags as far as you go. Come to me. Work with me. Work in me, work for me. Listen to what it says in just 1 Corinthians 3.9. It says, for we are God's co-workers. You are God's field, His building. That is such a profound thought. (laughs) The transcendent creator of the universe, the unmoved mover, the one that is before all things. We can't even comprehend Him. The moment I say something about Him, I've done a disservice to Him already. That God says, I have chosen you as my co-worker. You, painter, programmer, plumber, poet, whatever it is, I have chosen you to work with me. And I'm making that invitation to us today. Instead of struggling on your own, in your studies, in your parenting, in your work, taking that weight upon yourself, thinking God is not there, He's not interested, He's not needed. God is saying, trust me in this. Make me the pilot. Make me the author. Make me the creator. I have invited you already. Sit right next to me. Be the co-author, the co-pilot, the co-creator, the co-laborer of this life that I've given you and see what will happen. And just to work like that, to work for God, to work with His perspective, to work with God, working with His power, working in God, working in His presence. He says, man, trust me, the resource that I've given you is endless. That's available to you. I think about that story of those two NASA workers. They're doing HR optimization at NASA, and they're interviewing these two men. They work right next to each other on, the, on this little conveyor belt, and they're just turning, you know, just doing nuts and bolts all day. It's this menial work, and so they interview the one. They ask him, and so describe your work to us. What do you do for a living? And he says, it's horrible. I sit there day in, day out, and it's just nuts and bolts, and it's, it's boring, and it's menial, it's frustrating, and it's repetition all the time. It's, it sucks. My work sucks. 
And they asked this other man who works next to him, right next to him, doing the same job. So describe your work to us. What do you do for a living? And his face just lights up. And he says, I enable mankind to explore the far reaches of the universe. That's what I do for a living. What's changed? This man has tapped into a perspective that transcends his work. He's tapping into a power, into a presence that transcends what he does day to day. And God says, I've invited you in your parenting, in your work, in your studies. Trust me, don't go this alone. So to finish off this morning, what what will you do about that? I told you just one thing, literally one thing. You see, I think the challenge in Jacob's life and our lives is that we so easily forget. We just move on. And I was thinking of this, probably the most powerful example of this that I can think of, of a moment where people say we can't move on. We have to remember. I think of the Holocaust, probably the most brutally evil moment in the last hundred years of just mankind's existence. Six million Jewish people and other minority groups decimated by Nazi Germany, rid from the face of the earth, unspeakable evil done to these people. And what do you think the German people would do after this? After this, Do you just say, we just move on? No, they made such a wise choice and they said, we need to put things in place so that we never actually forget Because if we forget and just move on, we will just repeat history once again. And so you can go and read this about yourself. But the 17th of January is this, it's this national day in Germany. It's the the Holocaust Memorial Day. It's a day of remembrance. All over Germany and Europe, you've got all these, these museums and places that have been set up in different ways, engaging people with the story of the Holocaust, places of remembrance. There are signs actually strewn all throughout Germany where they still have some of these uh, biased and and some of these evil and some of these, um, you know, racist statements that were spoken, convictions the German people had all over the city. These little plaques that you would find that would say things like, a Jewish doctor is not allowed to practice here so that people would not forget. But the one that has captured my imagination more than all the others, this is the one that I want to leave us with. These are called Stolpersteiner, stumbling blocks. I think this is such a beautiful picture. You see, more than 60,000 of these, all over 21 countries in Europe, have been sunk into the pavement of places and homes where Jewish people once lived. And that specific person, their details are captured on this. Who was this person? What did they do? How did they die? And it's been raised just a bit, so that as you kind of carelessly walk past, you would literally stumble over it, and you would have to turn back and say, I remember. I take note. You see, friends, in Jacob's life, he had moments like that. At Bethel, God says, take note, Jacob. I am with you. He wrestles with him, and it says he just touches his hip, and he has this permanent limp. And for the rest of his life, Jacob walks with a reminder of the fact that God says, I'm with you. Engage me. Don't go this alone. 
And so here's my challenge to you and I. Just one simple thing. Every single morning, just do this for this first week. Before you enter into that morning at the office, before you start engaging your kids, before you go into your studies, can you have a Stoiposteiner moment in the morning where you just in your car, in the elevator up to your office, wherever it is, just for one minute, you just close your eyes and you say, God, in this moment, I take note of the fact that you are here. And today, God, I'm going to work for you. I'm going to work with you. I'm going to work in you. I am not alone because God is here, even if I don't take note of it. And I'm just asking you to see what happens. He says, Jacob, you are the self-made, self-starting man. I'm inviting you. Be the co-author. Be the co-laborer. Be the co-worker. Maybe for you this morning. Have a stumbling block moment every single day and just say, God, you are here. And I am open and ready to be encouraged, strengthened, led, challenged, humbled, just brought up once again to your perspective. Let's pray. Jesus, this morning, I just pray that we would do this not as a way to force anything in our lives, but just as a response to the grace of Jesus, to the response of your cross and your empty grave. God, may we be people who take note of what you are doing, where you are doing it, and how you are doing it. And may every single partner here this morning just be infused with your passion and your strength and your wisdom as we take note day by day of your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So to end off this morning, like we have done over the last two or three weeks, we've said that we want to take just two, three minutes at the end of each of our sermons and just have a quick practical chat with one of our partners. And just hear, what does this look like in your life? We don't have it figured out. How do I bring God into my workspace? So we've had an amazing chat with Nick. And last week we spoke with Wayne, Wayne and Melissa. And this morning we have the great privilege of having Lachai and Tammy with us. Uh, they are just going to speak to us a bit about what it looks like in their own life. And so can we give them a hand as they come forward? They're going to join us right in the front here and just sit um, on these chairs. Um, I think Lachai, it looks like, is going to do most of the speaking, I'm guessing. <laughs> um, but it would be nice to have his wife join us here. So Lachai, join me. You can see our, our beautiful studio. Um, it's, it's pretty sparse, but we are working on it. Uh, maybe we'll have a nice carpet, um, a, a coffee machine at the back or something to that effect. But let's start, um, as we have started each week, just by having a quick get-to-know-each-other. So, Lachai, just briefly tell us who you are and what you do. Uh, where do I start? I'm a father to two boys, you know, husband to one wife. <laughs> That's an important detail. To throw in there, yeah. And I'm a media minister working with marketplace ministries and corporates in general. And we are embarking on a project to connect and streamline the creative arts industry in the country, in the continent, through four IR projects, you know, technologies, new media. How do, you trans, how do you transcend from the current status of media into the coming four IR platforms? The whole world right now is, con is converging. Everything is going to be IT-based. Everything is going to, to, to migrate. 
uh, South Africa is in the process of migrating digitally. So we are in that process, we're in that gap. We see ourselves uh, working with government, we see ourselves working with industry leaders, bringing together a structure and a, and a policy framework to establish so that we don't get, uh, we don't miss the future economy, which is going to be mostly in the internet. And so tell us maybe one, one thing that you feel, this is an exciting part of my work and this is a challenging part of my work. <laughs> I work with her, so it's exciting. That's the exciting part, yeah, just to make sure. And then engaging with helping people to, to solve their challenges in their businesses, helping people to create awareness with the products that, and the gifts and talents that they have, uh, seeing fruits come f from that, seeing that whenever we, we, we come across people, their lives change because of the gifts and talents that God has blessed us with, seeing uh, people at, from different walks of life, as long as they're in our perimeter, seeing the move of God touching them. That's the most exciting part of our life. Yeah. And challenging? What's, what's one challenging thing about the your The challenging life? part is the persecution that you have to go through when you're introducing new concepts. So with whether it's Jesus, whether it's a new idea, it's never taken easily. And the struggle to get people on the same page or get the communication across for people to join you on this journey. Or for example, you see a client and you have a solution for them, but they've been doing things the same way all the way and you have to go to where they are and bring them up and show them where they could be, walk with them in that whole process without being offended. <laughs> yeah, that's a challenge. So maybe on that note, just as a last question, uh, what's one thing, and then we're actually going to pray for that as we have done over these last couple of weeks, what's one thing that we can pray with and for um, just in your life in terms of what you guys are doing and that we can stand with you? What would be that one thing? Right now, the country, this week we were in a meeting with, with government and stakeholders in the creative industry. There's a master plan that we're developing. And what it means is that, because there's a current copyright bill that has been passed, and what it means is that the Doxateo album can just be taken and used, exploited without the royalties and the rewards that it's due to the South African market. And most of us in the continent are standing with that. In the country, we're standing with it together in one voice to say this is not going to be... This, is, this should not be passed in our country. We can't take our birthright and give it away to the grabbies. <laughs> but but we, need to, we need to set up ourselves. We need to organize ourselves. And that's where God has put us. So as we are there with these uh, influential people, our prayer is that we're covered. Just add us in your prayers with, ever, with whatever resources that are needed to make this thing work. Because generations to come... Uh, Young people will be employed, the industry will be thriving, and everything is sort of like converging. But now we need the, the African voice. We need us. We need the body of Christ to be there also at the gates because that's also another thing. What is being allowed to enter into the continent as we give ourselves out there? That's very important for us. Yeah. So I hope maybe just over the last two or three weeks, uh, Nick being in a bit more of a white-collar job, uh, Wayne last week is an electrician in the media space. Friends, we are figuring this out together. Moms, dads, teachers, doctors, uh, students. What does it look like to enter connected with God into my work life 
7. So guys, thank you so much for sharing your story. Can we end off like we always have, just standing together, stretching out our hands to them and just praying for them as a couple, praying for them as a family, that God would bless them in their marriage, bless them in their endeavors, and that they would co-author, co-create, and co-pilot with them. Can we do that? So if you're comfortable, just stretch out your hand. We're going to pray for them as we end off. Yeah, so Jesus, we pray for Lachai, for Tammy. Uh, we pray for their family, pray for their marriage. But we also pray, God, that you would give them the diligence and the persistence to follow wherever you are leading at the moment. And God, just almost the opposite of what we've heard this morning with Jacob, may you open the doors, God. May you show them great favor. And may they just have the sense, like we spoke in week one, that they would have the joy of God over their life when they do what they've been called to do. May they find such passion as they engage your plan for their life in their workspace. God, bless them as city changes. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.